0: The technology likely to have the greatest impact on the next few decades has arrived.
1: You can start building completely new concepts for payments that we've never
0: thought of Remove the need for a financial intermediary to transact value.
1: Bitcoin and the blockchain have an amazing future. This is going to transform society. Okay, guys, what's up? So I'm sat here with Hashoshi. Well, no, I'm not actually sat with you physically. We're we're on a Zoom call, but... uh, How's it going Forrest? Introduce yourself and just uh, let the people know who you are.
0: It's going. It's good to be uh, to be back on with you Felix and the Crypto Authority cast here. Um, my name is Forrest. I'm a, a blockchain developer and I have a YouTube channel called Hishoshi, where I talk about all things blockchain, cryptocurrency, uh, decentralized tech, etc. So I'm really stoked for uh, today's conversation.
1: How's it going with the channel in general? Because... I recently saw I haven't watched it yet, but in my sub box I got a notification that you posted a video about the brave browser, which I find a really interesting project. So What what does how's it going with the channel firstly and what does that video touch on? What are the the most interesting aspects of that video?
0: Certainly. Yeah, the channel's going well um, I, I'm super thankful that people are stopping in watching the content um, you know, asking questions, sharing their thoughts—it's been a really great experience. Um, and in terms of Brave, that's one of the projects that I think I'm most passionate about. I think that they have a fantastic product. Um, they have great ideas for how to move it forward. They have, of course, ways that they can improve. And I love commenting on that, and I love having other people comment on that. So I've just been creating content about Brave, you know, here and there over the last six to eight months, because that's my way of getting more people to use it, getting more people to know about it. And my last video that just posted yesterday is, uh, it's like a, a tips video. So it's like five tips and tricks to get the most out of brave browser when you download it. So, uh, yeah, that's a, it's well worth the watch if you have brave browser and you want to poke around in settings and, and learn how to use some of the features.
1: Okay. So for the people that don't have brave browser, give us a quick summary of what it is and what's the unique selling point of it.
0: For sure. Yeah. So Brave browser is a cryptocurrency backed browser and I'll get more to that in just a second. But first and foremost, Brave browser is all about giving the internet experience back to the user. So rather than you having to see unending numbers of ads without you having to be tracked everywhere you go, being targeted by, you know, internet agencies, marketing agencies, so on and so forth. um, Brave takes all that out and gives you all the control. So out of the box, you have ad blocking, you have tracker blocking, you have tour private browsing as an option, you have all sorts of privacy features, and you get that same, you know, UX UI that everyone loves with Chrome without having to deal with all the Google tracking stuff that comes along with it. And then, you know, moving into the crypto part of it, they've created this whole microeconomy around internet content where you can earn their utility token, basic attention token for watching ads. And then you can use that same basic attention token to pay your favorite creators that, you know, create content that you watch. And it's all integrated into the very fabric of that that browser. So to me, it's the best browser. I use it every day now. I've switched away from Chrome fully, and I love it.
1: Yeah, man, it's it's great. And I used it a few months ago, and I did admit this on the podcast already, but I, I just couldn't stick with it because like you mentioned all of the features of it are so empowering and they're so great and for the consumer's benefit more than anything but you know those little features that you get with Google so when you type into Google like the capital of and it will just come out automatically and it won't go into a uh, into a separate site or the the kind of little features that Google are able to add because they track your data and all that I I, I do miss that I have to admit that I'm somewhat Addicted? not addicted. That's a that's a, big and a lot of people yeah. are
0: like, I'm the same way there are a lot of things that I miss about You know the it is convenient when they track what you're doing because they know what to give you before you you get you Are even looking for it, right? Exactly. So yeah, I mean it's a trade-off, but I think in terms of your everyday browsing um, You know, especially like shopping and things it's always good to have a little bit of privacy uh, for just for the sake of pricing alone
1: Yep. So I think this is actually a good segue and it's was intentional. It wasn't intentional, but it works well. So the reason why I asked you uh to sit down and have this chat on this Saturday afternoon for myself but you're in the states so morning is to uh is to discuss web 3.0. So before we get into things let's go back a few decades. What was the first vision of the internet and then how did that transpire and come to be? To what we have today,
0: yeah, certainly, so I think early on, the entire concept of the internet really spun off from um, individuals that were involved in technology. Um, there was a lot of research being done, and I think the first real evolution of the internet with you know packets of data, so on and so forth was ARPANET, and that was a um, it was basically an experiment to research the way that we could share information in an operational manner. Um, and then over time, and I think that was in the eighties and over time, what happened is that experiment started to get a little bit of steam behind it. And then there became this movement behind the internet itself, the concept of the internet to create this, uh, international almost club of people that were trying to push this technology forward. But really, if we go back to the first time that the technology that enabled the internet was really invented, it's all the way back in the 60s. I and mean, you look at MIT papers that were published on packet switching and things that were referencing something called a galactic network at MIT in 1962, and it's all about this globally interconnected series of computers where everyone can share and access data and, and programs from anywhere in the world. So it's amazing to think that this idea of the internet that we use every day today, it was an idea that was prevalent in the 60s before computing even really existed.
1: Okay, so the first thing that I've picked up on is that you said, or the way that you kind of described the vision that they had in the 60s was an open source kind of network where power was democratized. Is that
0: correct? Right. It's basically when, when the idea of the internet really came to be in the form of a paper. And I misspoke earlier. The ARPANET um, plan really did occur in the 60s, not the 80s. I meant to say 60s. It's my mistake. Okay. Um, but essentially, this was a Department of Defense project. It originated from um, MIT, a group called RAND, um, and at NPL. It's all these acronyms, but the those are the names of the groups that really worked on this in parallel to help push this stuff forward and then you know towards the end of the 1960s you know research had continued they had really brought up this whole uh, demonstration or sort of proof of concept of what packet switching would look like what the internet would eventually become um that was arpanet and then they started in the following years integrating Other trying to integrate other organizations into this mix. And so you started getting this this concept of, we have internal sharing now of information. We can prove this concept. Now let's get other people to join. And it reminds me so much of what we're doing right now with, with blockchain. There's so many companies that are starting to experiment with this and use it. And now they're saying, all right, we understand this now for us. Now let's get other people involved and start building larger networks, right? So the parallels are, are there for sure and in the way that this stuff is evolving.
1: Absolutely, and we'll touch on that a bit later on, but we, we know we have the term Web 3.0, but was there or is there a term for, or a kind of an epoch for Web 1.0 and Web 2.0? Is it clearly defined as such?
0: Yeah, so honestly, I think of it a lot like ancient history. Uh In the times when, you know, I mean, we call these, we have these names for periods of time, right. In, in modern history, but back then that was just reality for them. Right. So there, there wasn't this whole idea of web 1.0, web 2.0, web 3.0 and this whole roadmap back then in the 1960s and seventies, when this stuff started with ARPANET and when the global consortia or the consortia for the internet really started. But we've now retroactively have given that original, um, that original period of the internet starting to pick up steam as web 1.0.
1: Okay. So what did that first edition of the internet look like?
0: Honestly, it was a web of, you know, interconnected computers in a basic sense, but it was just a bunch of static websites with information. Um, so it was almost like a digital encyclopedia that was, um, Slightly decentralized and disintermediated across different players like players and platforms, right? Um, but there wasn't any interactive plat like internet any interactive content whatsoever. There wasn't you know applications running or anything And it was all dial up through, you know Technologies that we used for phone lines.
1: Okay, so what kind of years did this edition of the internet last to? Um,
0: in my opinion, it's kind of hard to define exactly what dates there were but in yeah. my opinion, um you can really define it as that original time when ARPANET really came. Um, So the the 60s all the way through to probably the late 90s, in my opinion. Okay. Um, You know, at the turn of the 21st century, a lot of stuff started changing. And the mid to late 90s were the the real cutoff period for the generational growth from Web 1.0 to Web 2.0. But just to color in a little bit, You know, you can think of Web 1.0 as really just as simple. It's users requesting a website in a really slow and ugly fashion, and then one of those, you know, maybe hundred thousand max websites that were out there fed back information, and you could read it. That was about what it was, and it was horrifyingly slow. There was very little out there to make it comfortable for the user. I mean, even when um, at the very end of this as things started to progress where you had AOL chat rooms, you had MSN chat rooms you'd ask Jeebs, you had stuff like that. None of that was what we're used to today. There was no streaming, there was no, um, you couldn't even get a picture because downloading a picture could take hours if not days on that, that uh, infrastructure.
1: See, like, it's amazing to think how far we've come Just in the 60 years, like you say, how nascent and primitive that edition of the internet was, Web 1.0. And it's just incredible to see where we've got today. But before we talk about where we are today, or no, before we talk about where we're going to be tomorrow, let's talk about where we are today. And am I right in saying that you categorize us in the Web 2.0 era right now?
0: I do. Yeah. And I think we're we're towards the tail end of this. I think, yeah. You know, Web 2.0 really is the time when people started interacting with the internet and the infrastructure started to come into its own and and reach maturity so that people were enabled to create their own content, right? People were able to interact with websites that were out there and make changes and actually do things. So it wasn't like a, a unilateral a ex- uh, method of exchange. It wasn't you request information and then you get it. It was you request information, you get it, then you might be able to modify that information or heck you could be the originator of that information. So the times of dial up and other things started to move away. We started to get other connection uh, methodologies and it got faster and faster and faster until it was very easy for us to have streaming video with youtube for example the video quality wasn't great the user interface and the experience wasn't amazing but it was there and it was brand new you know Flickr and facebook allowed people to post images post information about what they're doing what they're up to um and and community really started so i think web 2.0 was just it was less so this um extreme innovation i think it was really just polishing and iteration on what web 1.0 really was
1: yeah i want to touch on the weaknesses or the limitations of web Mm 2.0 and i want to kick it off with the the kind of fact that we have just a few companies or a, a small group of companies a coterie whereby they just they own just such a lot. They they monopolize. They've monopolized it in. Ugh, Christ, sorry. Let me rephrase myself, Forrest. God. <laughs> so, one of the things that I'm most afraid of in Web 2.0 is the monopolization and the power and the exploitation of these huge powers like Google, like Amazon, like Instagram, like Facebook. And we've seen that transpire in the last few years with Cambridge Analytica, and um, like we spoke before. Um, the breach of privacy and the importance of alternative solutions like brave. So mm-hmm. what do you think are the main disadvantages with web
0: 2.0? Well, I think there are a lot, um, you know, I, I don't even think that we've gotten enough out of what we have today in terms of, of speed. I don't think we have enough in terms of, of infrastructure either so i I think our data speeds even though everyone's like oh it's amazing i have gigabit internet in my house yeah you may have gigabit internet at the source but you don't have gigabit internet because the wiring in your house sucks and because your hardware sucks right so i think some of that needs to be get fixed for sure because people aren't getting what they're actually owed they're not getting what they're paying for but in terms of huge overarching issues issue number one for me is not everyone has the internet It's become so commercialized and almost so easily controlled by these big parties, inclusive of of governments, that people around the world in developing countries or even some developed countries where they control the dissemination of information, they just flat out don't have the internet. They don't don't even have the web 1.0 dream. They can't even get information, right? So I think our first task is fixing that. And I'm not, I'm not a, you know, an anarchist. I don't think that there shouldn't be governments. I don't think that there shouldn't be control over some elements of the world because that—you know, obviously we know human beings as, by nature can't necessarily be, uh, be trusted to do everything correctly on their own, right? They can't, we can't self-police in every single way necessarily. Absolutely. So that's a separate argument. But regardless, everyone should have access to the same internet and that same promise and opportunity.
1: Yeah, I agree.
0: Yeah. I mean, to what you're saying, you know, to your points, the centralization is also a massive issue. You know, I think over the last 10 years, all these systems that people use, the Facebooks, the Instagrams, the Twitters, the Amazon, all of these, you're like, how, how do they make money? Like, I don't pay for this. It's free they make money because they get so much information about who you are as a person and your behavior that in a way is used against you, but more so it's really used to market to you. And that information has been sold to the highest bidder for years. And so these services just drive home the same point that we always say, you know, to our kids, to our friends, to people, you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch. You cannot expect to get a service for free. With not out giving up something in return, and in this case, it's it's your data, and so these this stockpiling of data and these centralized servers, the constant um, messages we get and news uh, you know news articles we see about data breaches that have lost passwords and email addresses and personal information addresses, at worst your social security numbers or passport numbers, so so on and so forth. That's the big problem. So much data has been collected not enough has been done to protect it. And a lot of times it's been collected with no real intent or understanding of how it was supposed to be used.
1: Yeah, I think the the quote that most resonates with me is, if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. And I think this yeah. brings us onto Web 3.0 really well. And before, we've kind of discussed the limitations of Web 2.0. So how does Web 3.0 how is it an improvement or an evolution of web 2.0 what is it and does it does it solve some of the issues that we're currently seeing in the edition of the internet in which we live today
0: yeah it definitely does improve and the whole idea of web 3.0 is now taking a widely dispersed and capable internet but now making it more user-centric more decentralized making the internet itself smarter so that the policing and the um, the content distribution, the understanding of what content goes where, all of that stuff that's controlled by central authorities now can then go into the hands of a decentralized protocol that does it based on the changing, the evolution that people and our behaviors and our desires and wants and needs change as well over time. So the whole idea here is that Web 3.0 will provide people more privacy. It'll provide people access to the internet that don't already have it. It'll provide a way for everyone to, sh- to share in the spoils of what the internet means to us and not just having this one-way transfer of information where we get provided an addictive service and then we give up all of our personal information for mass profit, right? Right. But I think if you wanted to think about it from a technical side, it's moving to no central ports of control. And that includes the infrastructure part. Because if you host host an application right now, right, if you're a, a social network, it's likely that a lot of your servers are on AWS, right? And there are a lot of different places where AWS has server farms. I actually live near one, right? All it would really take is a targeted attack to one of those. And then you've denied service to that application, right? And social networks are a, a massive example, but it's even more prevalent for smaller applications, right? Where you may be only hosted in one or two places. So there's still central control for a lot of these things. There's no, di- there's no real distribution because obviously they've collected all this data and they need to try to protect it. And if you spread it out everywhere, it's really hard to protect, right? Yeah. And that brings me to the second thing and that's ownership of data. Like, who owns the data? Technically, it's yours, but you don't own it because it's not in your database. You have no control and no say over whether or not someone uses it, sells it, deletes it, shares it on social media. You have virtually, you have virtually no rights because everyone clicks that little checkbox on the website without reading and gives up their rights all the time, right?
1: Yeah, I, I find it quite <laughs> funny how you said everyone gives up their rights right?
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's true because people do and without really thinking about it. And trust me, I mean, I've, I'm, I'm not sitting here on my high horse saying I'm not guilty of doing the same thing. If I need to use a service and I have to click the stupid checkbox that I can use it because I'm busy and I'm trying to get something done or because I just don't want to deal with it, then I click it and I move on and forget. So it's, it's a problem.
1: How do you think the blockchain industry or decentralized systems have a part to play within this revolution. So you mentioned smart contracts. So let's touch on them a bit more. What what part does smart contracts have to play? In your I opinion, think- of course, because everything that we're talking about now is obviously um theoretical. Like there's no planned roadmap for this thing that we're referring to as Web 3.0, this is all in theory. So Yeah, it's,
0: it's a concept, less so a, uh, a, a defined plan. I don't think we're going to even have a defined plan. I think what's going to happen is you're going to see technologies like, um, you know, the blockchain stuff out there in the world today, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, etc. Pushing the envelope and making people think about this and then it's going to happen on its own. But smart contracts have a part to play. But I think the overarching theme here is that blockchains have a part to play because naturally, understanding that you want to take away centralized control, you want to disintermediate the internet a little bit more. You want to give the power back to the individual to own their data. That's where blockchains play really nicely because blockchains are really good at a few things. They're good at um, proofing and proving historical information they're good at maintaining a record of what someone or something has done in the past and what they will do and facilitating transactions peer to peer without needing a central authority, right? Amongst other things. And so when you have a blockchain with smart contract capabilities, for example, you then open up a whole opportunity for you to make attestations of identity on the behalf of yourself in the form of a um you know a zero knowledge proof style or simply like the uh, the ERC 725 standard for identity being able to say hey i do have this accreditation from this university or i do have this accreditation from this uh certifying authority see they've signed this uh this transaction that says i have earned that right yeah all you're doing is saying you're answering a question, yes or no, and the trust is manifested by that signature. So you're not saying, My name is, my name is Forrest. I live at this address. This is my social security number. This is my phone number. This is the contact information from my university. So that these people can go verify that, like they do today. And that's really the the genesis of the problem. People collect information because they want to verify other stuff you know, you want to get a mortgage, you're going to give up everything about yourself. Period. End of story.
1: Yeah. What crypto projects or blockchain projects do you think have been contributing most towards the idea of Web 3.0?
0: I think there are some that are contributing indirectly, like not purposefully, and others that are directly targeting this problem.
1: Okay, interesting.
0: I think the incidental or... Almost, um, yeah, actually incidental is a good way of saying it. The incidental ones, for sure, Bitcoin. I don't think Bitcoin was invented to solve this problem unilaterally, nor do I think it is the entire solution because I think people overblow this big time. Blockchain is not the only solution to this problem. It is not the only thing that has to happen to make this a reality. There's a lot of stuff that has to happen. I think Bitcoin's one of them. I think Ethereum also as much as web three and whatever is referenced in Ethereum's, um, mantra and some of their products, I don't think that that was the true, um, true goal that they were trying to reach. I think decentralized applications are only part of the puzzle. So I think those two projects for sure have contributed a lot in terms of ideation thinking and, um, roadmapping what this is going to look like. But then there are projects like, uh, like Skycoin, like Elastos, um, that are literally trying to do this directly, and that is their goal. That's what they state in their whole mission. Whether or not they're going to do this on their own, I think is besides the point and impossible to say. But really, they they have also identified both Elastos and Skycoin that this goes far beyond just a blockchain. There's there's a lot more to it than that.
1: Yeah, it's. It's such an interesting road to just go down and think about because the data hubs in which we have today pose such a, such a threat to society and to the individual consumer and the, the people of Earth. Like, yeah, it's, this is real. And one thing that I've been giving a lot of thought to recently or in preparation for this podcast is Web 2.0 is obviously, or in summary, has treated the consumer quite harshly in terms of privacy obviously we've been empowered in countless different ways and the fact that we now can answer any question in the world just by going on google is an invaluable resource but who do you think web 3.0 will have a greater impact to developers websites and just the owners of these DApps, or the everyday consumer
0: it's going to for sure be the biggest change and the biggest learning curve and disruption is going to be the, the, the incumbent, um, parties right now, the ones who own this process right now, it, the one that's going to get hit the hardest is the Googles, the Facebooks, the Amazons, et cetera. As more people demand to be in more control, the people who have it are either going to have to relinquish it or find a way to, uh, slide into a, a sort of niche that gives the people what they want, but they also then can profit off of that, right? So it's going to require some big time creativity from those those places. And it's no accident at all that Facebook is now starting to go on, on record and say, hey, we're experimenting with blockchain. We're, you know, we're focused on privacy and decentralization because they're not stupid. Facebook is many things, but they're not stupid. And I, I was listening to... A couple podcasts yesterday and even some of these (laughs) even some of the people who are like blockchain um you know blockchain friendly people like um like pomp pompliano he was saying don't bet against facebook because the reality is is they've done it multiple times already they've pivoted completely changed the model changed everything about their platform and and cemented themselves as as powerful parties no matter what so i'm very curious to see what their response is to this it the biggest change is going to come for those parties though
1: yeah all right so just to round things off can we go into a A section now does that sound good with you
0: yes but i do want to bring up one more thing
1: let's go for it what do you have to bring up for us
0: i think if you want to summarize web 3.0 and its promise uh-huh. in you know a, a few little points The first is that using technologies like artificial intelligence and uh, machine learning, right? Take decentralized data. You can take attestations that aren't centrally owned about people. And the internet itself, the fabric of the protocol, can help serve you up personalized content, right? The whole concept of Web 3.0 is that you can have customized experience without having to give up privacy. So making the web more semantic but without doing what we're doing now and giving up all your information to do it. Right. But beyond that, I think in my book, web 3.0 will be a success. If the ubiquity of the internet is exponentially growing and continues to because the internet needs to be able to reach people that don't have it yet for this to be a success like that. That's the biggest thing for me. The internet can work as well as possible it can be great for all these, you know, the the first world countries, quote unquote. But if it doesn't make its way to the the unbanked, to the people without access to information, et cetera, then it's a failure.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good, uh, really good way to round it up. And I I want to place special focus on what you just rounded off of on um, if if the people who aren't currently offered access to the internet and to financial services aren't offered it by the end of this revolution or yeah, by the end of it, I, uh, I think we would have failed to, because that's, that's the important thing right now. Only, only a small fraction of the, of the earth is connected in this global community and yeah, we need it. We need it to grow.
0: Agree. Definitely. Cool.
1: So I was going to ask you, as the first question what is your favorite thing about web 3.0 but we kind of just described it there so i'm going to go on to the next question and sure what is your most controversial thought within blockchain and crypto
0: my most controversial thought my most controversial thought is and it pisses a lot of people off but i think decentralization and the focus that it's being that's being placed on it in all these protocols right is garbage I think it's a stupid ass goal, in my opinion, because you we've seen it time and time again throughout history. If, you're ma- if the only measure that you're putting towards a, a blockchain project is that it is completely 100% decentralized, then you might as well just close your eyes and stop looking because there aren't any. And I don't know for a fact that there will be any because human beings as a species, as Unless our behavior changes generationally, like when our, on our kids, 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 when things go wrong, we look to a centralized authority to fix the problem. Whether that's one person, whether that's a huge organization, whether that's a government, that's what we do as people. So if we're saying that we are going to, in five years, get to a place where everything in the world is decentralized, there's no authorities, and we're just going to police ourselves. You're fucking joking, and I'm sorry to say that. <laughs> like, excuse my language, but it's just not going to happen that way. And so, I think that if we measure it by that, everything that we are doing is going to be a failure.
1: So, you think what we what would be optimal is to kind of have a hybrid in between the two,
0: right? I think we need to quell our expectations of what's going to happen in the next five years and ten years, and realize that if we build the infrastructure now and we build a platform for that that to occur as the rest of the world catches up and the rest of the technology and the rest of the the behavior that we have in this world catches up, it'll be there. I mean, I don't think that it's even there technologically to create an infrastructure that is truly secure enough and um, economically sound from a game theory perspective to say that we can we can even feasibly decentralize everything from a tech perspective but like completely before we get to the human part so i know it's controversial but the reality is is that it's just it's pragmatic i think if we measure if we measure ourselves against an impossible goal we'll never get anywhere
1: yeah i like that man that's a good way to put it so this is an interesting one because Obviously, this is your passion, so I'm interested in to I'm interested in hearing what you have to say. But in your opinion, Forrest, what is the most important company in the history of the internet?
0: Man, that's a tough one. I mean, the most important company in terms of the internet, honestly. Again, this is probably going to be controversial, but I think I'm honestly going to have to say Google because. What they did to make the Internet usable for people is something that can't be understated. And look, there are big problems with what they're doing, so I'm not defending things that they've done that are n- negative, but what I am doing is being reason- like realistic about the-, the contributions that they have made to the infrastructure.: Yep. Um, they've pushed the envelope on cloud encryption. they've pushed the envelope in terms of content delivery and the ability for people to have all the services that the internet can theoretically provide in one place with one account. Um, you know, even though people don't like it because it's a, a tracking thing, single sign on was a huge thing that made people's lives easier. I mean, at the and going back to the very beginning, indexing the world's information into a search engine. So people could find the information they wanted, not just what was there that matched a query directly to give people exactly what they're looking for that right there made the internet usable. And I don't think it would have, it would have had the success that it did without that. That's just my opinion.
1: Yeah. I think like you said, where they started off the, the foundations where they were just a search engine, that service in itself is just, it's changed. It changed humanity forever. But what I found in recent years is the development of the Google ecosystem as a whole. So Gmail, Google Calendar, Google Duo, uh, Google Reminders, Google Tasks. It's just everything. They've got an application for everything I have to do whilst being connected to the internet. And it's fantastic. That, again, single sign in, or I'm not sure what the mode is actually called. I think you called it single sign in, but
0: yeah, so. amazing. it's
1: amazing. It's so efficient, and humans will always gravitate towards that which is most efficient and most right. convenient.
0: I agree. And again, that, really harkens back to my original, my, my point right before this is that, yeah, we could very, like in the future we can feasibly think of a time where all of that would be decentralized and there would be no connection whatsoever to any central server. It's all well and good. But what happens when your information does get stolen? What happens when you forget a password or you lose your keys? This is stuff that hasn't been figured out yet and hasn't been thought about. So yes, we should be striving to get towards the most decentralized thing that we possibly can, but also understanding the limitations of human beings to solve these problems on their own and the need for there to be some sort of arbitration process when things go wrong or um, fail safes for people. Those things have to get built. And we're still in the process of building the product that needs to work not the extra features like that you know
1: for sure so forrest you're a you're an ethereum dev and uh you've built a bunch of different DApps on top of ethereum i'm right in saying no right yep okay so what are your thoughts about ethereum 2.0 and the move to proof of work uh, proof of work the move to proof of state later this summer i know we could we could probably do an entire podcast about this but Just in summary, in a few sentences, what are your thoughts about it?
0: Um, In a few sentences, I think Ethereum 2.0 is not too late. People are saying that it's too late. I don't think it is because in my opinion, there is not a platform or protocol out there that has implemented all of the stuff that's going to be encapsulated in Ethereum 2.0 into a mainnet. And that really works perfectly with no drawbacks, right? That doesn't exist. I also think that they've made the right choice by deciding to go to a sort of slow burn hybrid proof of stake, proof of work mechanism, and then move towards full proof of stake in the future when they can see how this is going to work in a public environment. Because it never works the same way in the public as it does in your test environment when you come to a decentralized system, because people do stuff you can never predict. Yeah. So I think that's, that's one thing, but I also think this, this time that we're in right now with Ethereum 2.0 coming with Cardano, like rapidly trying to get everything that they're trying to do into mainnet with, you know, Tron always marketing up a storm and, and talking about their DAP usage and, and the reality that people do use their stuff. Um, You have EOS also that's out there doing their thing. This is going to be a really dramatic and interesting run-up to 2020 to see where all these platforms shake out. Okay. It's make or break time, in my opinion.
1: You think in 2020?
0: Well, I don't think. I mean, I think we'll start to see some of the features roll out in forks for Ethereum 2.0. But in my opinion, looking at the roadmap, and just listening to the way that they're talking about it, I don't think we're going to see um, end state product from ethereum, cardano, or any of these platforms until 2020 like early 2020, if not later that's okay. just my opinion okay. only because i the complexity is something that's so under like so understated in the news market today. people are like, oh yeah well ch- sharding and and proof of stake at scale that That should be done yesterday. I mean, if it were that easy, it would have already been done. I'm sorry to say. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay, so Forrest, last question. Um, Is there anyone that you've read work from recently or watched a video on, or just someone you know who you could recommend for us to try and get on the show?
0: Um, Yeah, there are a couple people. Um, I think the... I did a recently I wrote an article um, about a podcast episode, the Evolvement podcast, the the Michael Nye podcast with uh, Mark Yasko. And he's a very interesting guy and he has a lot of really interesting talking points and philosophies and, and knowledge that I think would be extremely valuable to hear. Um, Definitely worth a listen to that other podcast as well. Um, and and then beyond that, I think if you can get uh, one of the folks from Unstoppable Domains to join to talk about how they're trying to implement this uh, basically entire DNS system for blockchain crypto addresses mapped to one human readable name, I think you should do that as well. Because those uh, those sorts of folks that have philosophies about those not protocol level, but supporting features especially are, are super cool to hear, hear from because those are user uh, focused things.
1: Okay, what was the name of the domain one once again?
0: It's called Unstoppable Domains. I just did a video about it on my channel um, and I had the chance to speak to um, some of the, the prominent people over there you know, at length and got to dig into the code a little bit and it, it's, it was really cool to do.
1: Okay, awesome. Unstoppable. (laughs) Okay, awesome. Unstoppable domains. I'm going to look at them after the show. All right, Forrest. So thanks a bunch, man. This has been absolutely incredible. I've learned quite a lot about Web 3.0 and I I now have a bunch of things that I want to go away and look into more. So thank you. Thanks for enlightening me.
0: For sure, man. I mean, likewise, I think for me and for everybody, we're still learning what this is going to mean for us and what the world is going to do in reaction to some of these things um and and i think it's it's one of those things where if we just continue to try and learn new stuff every day that's the key
1: yep all right well thanks so much for i'll catch you later man
0: awesome thanks brother